2: Welcome to the Wednesday edition of The Word to Stand On for Life. My name is Pastor Ken. I am filling in for Pastor Ron this week for the radio show. More on that in a second, but let me remind you what this radio show is for. We want to take your Bible questions uh, questions about uh, how to put the Word of God into practice in your life, questions about Jesus. Um, and how you can fall deeper in love with him. That's really why we're here. And so if you have any questions about anything you're reading, or if you have questions about uh, a particular passage of Scripture, um, what we'd like to do is take your questions and then help you understand God's heart. And so with that, let me give you the phone numbers. two one zero three four zero ninety five eighty five. 210-340-9585. That's 210 210- 340 9585 877 630 5757. 877 630 That's the toll free number if you're out of the local area. The email address, if you want to submit questions that way, we'll get them into our inbox and then we'll answer them over the air. That email address is questions, that's plural, questions at calvarysa.com. We've got the church app. You can submit questions that way. And you can also call into the radio show using the KSLR app. There's an easy way to hit the call now banner up at the top. You'll get connected into the radio uh, station and ask your question on the air. Particularly a convenient if you're driving in your car makes it a lot easier. Okay, so I told you it's Wednesday. That means here at Calvary Chapel, it is our Old Testament Wednesday night, so seven o'clock here in the sanctuary. Since Pastor Ron's not here, we will continue with the Old Testament night, but we'll have Pastor Ed teaching out of Psalm chapter sixty-two. And so Pastor Ed Rodriguez is our Spanish pastor? He teaches through the Bible at our Spanish study on Sunday afternoons, and he's our most recent uh, pastor ordained to the staff. And so, uh, Pastor Ed, great heart for Jesus, I love that guy. Teaching tonight, seven o'clock, here at Calvary Chapel. And so, I said, Pastor Juan and Paula are out of town. You're just tuning in for the first time this week. Pastor Ron and Paula are spending this week away to celebrate their 50th wedding anniversary. And if you know Pastor Ron, you know this is a, it's not something that he normally does. They Both he and Paula don't normally make a big deal out of celebrations of, of anniversaries or, or, or even birthdays. But this particular one... Pastor Ron wanted to make it special, and he sure did. Paula was thrilled. She was sending pictures of how beautiful the place is, and he surprised her. So good job, Pastor Ron. He'll be back here on the air Monday to take your questions on the show. Okay, in the meantime, since we don't have any colors yet, I gave you the numbers. Let's jump right into the program. We've got a, a few questions here. The first one is from Mick. Pastor Ken, good to hear your voice on the radio for Pastor Ron. Thank you, Mick. My question is, Paul makes it a point to introduce himself in every letter he wrote. Many believe he is the author of Hebrews. It just doesn't seem right since he, parenthesis, if he did write it, doesn't introduce himself. I understand a big argument is that it sounds like Paul, but what if the author was someone who worked alongside Paul and was familiar with how he spoke, such as Barnabas or Silas? Thank you. Okay, make great question. And this is one that comes up from time to time. <clears throat> and it's a good one. And so, just to be clear from the onset... Uh, When it comes to the author of Hebrews, uh, yes, the author is not named. And who wrote it is not a a doctrinally foundational issue. Uh, It is obviously somebody intimately familiar with the law, with Jewish culture. uh, And so identifying who it is uh, is one of those Bible questions that students of the Bible ask. So with that out of the way, Mick, uh, your question, and I'm one of those, like Pastor Ron, who subscribe to the idea that Paul is the author. And so here's a couple of things. The level of scholarship included in the book of Hebrews Uh, Again, mentioning the details of Jewish culture, Jewish religion, and in fact, that the Greek language employed in the writing of this letter is a very advanced, uses very advanced Greek. Now, that doesn't mean Paul wrote it, but it points to him because he was someone who was intimately familiar with all of these things. Paul the Apostle was wonderfully educated, a very smart man. He was um, really compared to anybody else, second to none, in terms of intelligence and wisdom. And combined with his knowledge, his background knowledge of the Jewish culture, combining the fact that with he was a Roman citizen and also intimately familiar with the Greek language, he was somebody that would be a perfect candidate. Now, there's other people that would also fit this category. Some say Luke. have no doubt, Dr. Luke was a brilliant man. But if you look at his writing, uh, Dr. Luke is primarily... A, a, his writings are in historical narrative. Now, he's a very smart man, and he writes to explicit detail both in his gospel and in the book of acts but what we don't what we see in in the book of hebrews is pretty interesting because it is written here's a second thing written primarily to an audience of hebrews uh, that were jewish christians and uh, this would be something that Paul, the apostle, who was called to be a gentile, uh, to, uh, to called to be a, an apostle to the Gentiles, would be able to write to the Jewish Christians because he had this knowledge. And it's not to say that Luke didn't, but again, this is, Luke has demonstrated that he was uh, particularly adept at at picking up and interviewing and and, and talking to the people that were around in the first century that had eyewitness testimony. But to me, it just makes a little bit more sense that this would be Paul's bag, if you will, something he would be intimately familiar with the law, the details of the law, the rituals of the law. And remember Paul himself, Paul, the apostle said he was a Hebrew among Hebrews. Now, in terms of internal evidence, there are no verses within the, the book of Hebrews that explicitly say that Paul is the author. You're right, Mick. He he doesn't Paul has uh has a habit of always um high identifying himself as the author or or at least it's being penned for him. If somebody is is he's he's re, he's reciting it and somebody's uh, dictating it and writing it down for him. But yes, most of the time he is writing with himself identified and the most common refutation of paul being the author the book of hebrews is in chapter 2 and in chapter 2 and verse 3 this verse is often cited because here um, the author writes that the message of salvation this would be the gospel message was first announced by the lord and confirmed to us by those who heard him. And implying that the gospel message given by Jesus and then those that heard it from him would communicate it to others. And some would say that excludes Paul since Paul heard the gospel. Remember in Galatians, he said that... Um, He heard the gospel directly from Jesus. He got saved on his encounter on the road to Damascus directly from Jesus. And so so some would interpret this to exclude him, but it doesn't. If you just read it for what it says, it just simply says that the gospel was introduced, was first announced by, by Jesus and confirmed to us by those who heard him. The fact that he says us doesn't mean he's excluded from that group. But one interesting thing, and this is the last thing I'll say about the internal evidence of of the book of Hebrews, one key indicator for me is is the the themes introduced or the themes discussed in the book of Hebrews that are also repeated, doctrinal themes that are also repeated in the Pauline epistles or the Pauline writings. And particularly in the Old Testament verses that he quotes, Habakkuk chapter 2, is one of those verses. Habakkuk chapter 2 is that verse we all know that the righteous shall live by faith. Now in the New Testament there's only three places that this is quoted. In in Romans chapter 1 this is where Paul the apostle is writing to the church of Rome and in the introduction of that letter he is talking about the righteousness of God being revealed as it is written that the just shall live by faith. And then the second time is in Galatians chapter 3. Again, Paul the apostle being the author. And he says that no one is justified by the law and the righteous shall live by faith. Again, quoting that verse from Habakkuk chapter 2. And then the, the third place is in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 is where, uh, again, I believe Paul wrote uh, in verse 38, I believe, quotes Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, which would imply that the, the, the theme of Romans was justification by faith. We know that when you study the book. The theme of Galatians is that that, that righteousness is, is not through the law, but through faith why he quotes Habakkuk chapter 2. And then, remember, the purpose of writing to the Hebrews is so that those Jewish Christians who had put their faith in Christ would not give in to the temptation of going back to their old religion. That's what they were tempted to do because of the persecution, because of the difficulty of life and uh, the way that they were being excluded from society. Uh, They were being told, look, if you would just... Leave your faith in Christ and come back to your old religion, come back to the law, your life will be so much easier. Um, and then, but that same theme from Habakkuk chapter 2 that continues from Galatians and Romans also carries over into Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, and to me, it's just a, a pretty easy picture of Paul. Now, again, it's not Something to debate about. It's not something to argue. Definitely don't argue about it. But it's interesting when you look at uh, the sort of the textual criticism and the writing style. Some some often say, who are critics of this idea, say that, well, Paul never talked about Jesus being the high priest. In Hebrews chapter 4 and 5, this is one of the main themes. Well, Paul didn't write to the Hebrews, he wrote to the Gentiles. And so, since this letter is written to the Hebrews, he would employ uh, concepts and word pictures that they would be intimately familiar with. By the way, one thing I really love about this book, Mick, uh, the way the book introduces itself, chapter 1, verse 2, uh, and when when Paul writes there that in... Past. Oh, verse one, our forefathers through the prophets, and God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, and at many times and in various ways. In verse two, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, and it's again this is not so much a thing about Pauline authorship, but the the Greek here again employing uh, a pretty advanced level of of Greek writing. There is no pronoun here. There is no article here before the word son. It simply reads, in the original language, he has spoken to us in son. So it's emphasizing not just the things that Jesus said, but emphasizing the person of Jesus Christ, him being God the Son and, and the one who reveals the Father to mankind. One of those things that really leave me in awe about this book. Again, not rock-solid evidence that Paul the Apostle is the author, but I think it definitely leans that way, for me at least. Mick, thank you for your question. and sorry if I went on a tangent there. I, I could talk about these things for, for a long time. <laughs> I love it. Oh, Second question is from Michael. Is there anything in the Bible that talks about me not living with my girlfriend? We are both Christians, but we're not married yet. We are engaged and are getting married next year. If we live together and just didn't have sex, will that be okay? Or is it sin just to even live together? Michael, this is an important question. You're not going, to find a, uh, not going to find a Bible verse that says, um, if you share an apartment t- together with your girlfriend, it is sin. And oftentimes people who try to defend this because this is what they're doing out of convenience or whatever reason, they, they say, well, show me a Bible verse that says that this is sin. But the Bible does tell us not to compromise, the Bible tells us that first Thessalonians chapter four, this is God's will that we abstain from sexual morality, First Corinthians chapter six For those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God and, and and what you're doing here is compromising and you're living a lifestyle of compromise and what that translates into Michael is you're effectively communicating to your girlfriend. Even if you're not having sex, you're communicating to her very clearly that you are willing to compromise in your walk with the Lord. And what you're doing is is telling her this trend will continue and grow exponentially into the marriage. If you compromise now, you're definitely going to compromise into the marriage. And so what you want to do is rightly represent the Lord to her now. And don't just think when you get married, you can flip a switch and make some changes. You want to demonstrate a life without compromise in your walk with the Lord now. Because again, this is so important, Michael, even if it's not your intention, and even if she says, no, it's okay, it's okay with me, you're telling her, that you are willing to compromise now before the marriage, and that you're also communicating that you're definitely going to compromise during the marriage. And I would add this too. This is something we bring up in counseling all the time. Whenever we do premarital counseling, and um, people want to honor the Lord in their relationship they're both uh, professing Christians and they want to get married in the church. Uh, when I sit down with them for the first time, one of the first questions I ask them is if they're having sex, if they are physically intimate. And, and Pastor Ron goes through the same thing. And we all know it's, you know when it's quiet, or they sort of turn to each other and just look at each other. We already know what the answer is. And it's not so that we can make any feel, anybody feel bad or heap guilt upon them, but they know it's wrong. And the fact that they're setting up premarital counseling is a good thing because it means that they want to deal with this. And so I tell them to the guy, I say, do you believe that she, and I point to the girl, is a gift from God to you? And he'll say yes. Then I'll ask him, then is it appropriate for you to repay God for this beautiful gift by defiling her? Then he gets quiet. And see, that's how we have to think. That's how I have to think. Now, the world's not going to think this way. They're just going to think that that's weird. But this is how Christians should think. We are born again. The old is gone and the new has come. And if we're going to, you know, Romans chapter 12 reminds us that we're no longer to be conformed to the patterns of this world. Conform no longer to the things that the world does. So just because it's convenient, just because you're not having sex and just because it makes everything easier, it still boils down to the fact that you're compromising. And so, Michael, I would say, don't do it. And don't forget, too, that same letter, First Thessalonians, the next chapter, chapter 5, you want to stay away or the New King James uses the word abstain from every kind of evil. Why give your flesh the opportunity to sin? But even if you didn't and you you were able to live together without having sex, that's not the point. So it's not okay. Don't compromise. If you are unable to resist yourself or if living situations just don't work out and it's not about convenience, but there really is no other option, well, then pray. Pray, both of you, because you don't want to compromise. Maybe the Lord is telling you to get married earlier. Um, But like I said, Michael, this is something we deal with all the time. You just simply can't compromise. If you do it now... You're going to do it into your marriage, and you're going to be remorseful later on. Don't defile the gift of God that he has given you. Well, let me elaborate on this a little bit more because, uh, Michael, it's not your question, and you didn't ask this specifically, but this is a common one that comes up. And since we're we're probably within three minutes at the first half of the show— I don't have time to, to answer another question. Let me say this. Premarital counseling is a beautiful thing. I love it when uh, couples, young and, and old even, they sit down and they ask for premarital counseling because they want to honor Jesus in their marriage and they want to honor Jesus in their relationship starting now. They can easily go down to the court, courthouse and get a justice of the peace, and God would honor that as well. But the fact that they're coming to a pastor, it's usually a sign that they want to do it right in God's eyes. And we want to honor that. And the best way to honor that is by giving them the direct truth. You know, it's, it's, before we even talk about details of the of the the venue and the music and the flowers and all these things that are going on, those are definitely important things. But the most important thing is making sure that Jesus is honored in the relationship today. And I'm not talking about just not having sex. That's obvious. But in everything that you do, the way you speak to each other, the way you treat each other, Uh, Are you in a relationship where you don't have sex, but you are looking to see how much or how close to the edge you can get without technically having sex? Well, guess what? That's wrong. That's still wrong. The sin isn't so much in the action that you take. It's the heart from which that action comes from. And if the heart is, is looking for ways to please the flesh. But not yet technically have sex. Your heart is wrong. And those are things that we want to deal with up front. So, Michael, I know that was very tangential to your question. But I hope that helps. You can hear the music, my friends. That means the first half of the Wednesday edition of the Word to Stand Up for Life is done. That means I'll be back in two minutes.
1: Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. Now here's Pastor Ron Arba.
2: Welcome back to the Wednesday edition of the Word to Stand On for Life. My name is Pastor Ken and this week I'm filling in for Pastor Ron Arba, my pastor who is out of town. Both he and Paula are enjoying themselves immensely, celebrating their fiftieth wedding anniversary. I believe it's on Friday, the actual the actual wedding anniversary date. And so what he did is he surprised Paula with a getaway and a really nice place overlooking Pastor Juan's favorite place, which is the Pacific Ocean, and they are having a blast. They send their love Uh, Thank you for keeping them in your prayers. Paula and Pastor Ron are definitely praying for you, the radio listening audience. He wanted you to know that he will be back on the air here on Monday. In the meantime, our show continues as it usually does, answering your Bible questions, questions about uh, doctrine, questions about how to put the Word of God into practice, anything we can do. To help you fall deeper in love with your Jesus. That's why we're here. So let me give you the quick phone numbers and then we'll jump right into the questions. If you want to call in, the number here is 210-340-9585. 210-340-9585. The toll-free number, 877-630-5757. 877-630-5757. The email address is questions, that's plural, questions at calvarysa.com. You can submit your questions that way and we'll get it into our email inbox and answer it on the air. Okay. Uh, Next question is Roger from Cibolo. I am a born again believer and own a successful business with a vision for growth but i've recently started to have thoughts about whether or not growing my business is acting out of pride how do i know if growing if growing my business is what god desires for me roger good question i love this because uh, yesterday we had a question about uh, the holy spirit and, and it was about the overemphasis of the Holy Spirit. And how that relates, I'll tell you here in a second. But what John writes in his first epistle in chapter 4 is to test the spirits. Paul the Apostle would write at the end of his second letter to the Corinthians to examine ourselves, to see if we're in the, in the faith. And the idea there is to test our hearts not to test to see if we're sincere, not to test to see if we're committed, but a test to see if our hearts are still in alignment with God's Word. Well, how do you know? Good question. Roger here, you're asking, how do I know if, it's, if I'm growing my business out of pride or if I'm acting out of pride? Well, Romans chapter 14 is one place you can look at. At the end of the verse... Oh, I'm sorry. At the end of the chapter... I think it's around... It's chapter 20... I'm sorry. Chapter 14, verse 23. Really simply, when Paul here is dealing in the context of um, not being a stumbling block to other people for the things that you do, how you conduct yourselves, you're always uh, cognizant of, of those that are around you. Well, when it comes to your business... It's the same thing. It's really the same thing in everything you do. And Romans chapter 14, verse 23 says, anything that is not of faith is sin. And I love this because Paul makes it crystal clear. It's not about, well, something is good and really good and not so good. And it's not a measure on success or material success to see if this is what God wants. It's the heart that matters. And if your heart is acting out in faith, the heart and the mind working together is making decisions, acting out in faith, trusting God, then it's not pride. It is focusing on Jesus. That's the opposite of pride. Now, On the outside, it may look the exact same way. I mean, the business decisions that you make may be the same ones, but the motive behind what you do with your business is what God is more interested in. And in the same way that Romans 14 is about the conduct of our character and how we act around other people. You want to conduct your business as the spirit leads. You make sure your heart is right with the Lord. You make sure that your employees they see Jesus in you, and they see Jesus in your business. And that's not pride, because the attention is being turned to Jesus. If were it were about you, Roger, then that may be pride. Pride likes to point to ourselves. I was joking with the Monday Night Men's group, and we're only really halfway joking because it, it, it was very serious, but... You know, when, whenever we enter into a conversation with somebody and they tell us, oh, my leg is hurting, my ankle is hurting, I sprained it playing basketball yesterday, it's really in pain, if our first inclination, our first response is, oh, that's nothing, let me tell you what happened to me, my leg is really hurting, oh, man, you just got a sprained ankle, I broke my leg, that's pride. Why? Because it turns the attention back to us. We like to talk about us. That's what pride is. But if the attention is turned to Jesus, well, that's not pride. That's humility. The opposite of pride. We understand who we are in light of scripture. We're grateful to God for what he's done in our lives and therefore everything we do, we do unto the glory of God. Conducting your life and your business as the Spirit leads. And if God blesses it, great. God blesses it. But if He blesses it, it doesn't you don't have to question if it all of a sudden begins to be about pride. He's blessing it because of your obedience. And you always check and make sure your heart is right. Second Corinthians. Chapter 12, it is. I believe in Paul writing to the Corinthians says to examine your hearts. First two verses. And then you're fine, Roger. God bless you because we need more business owners who love the Lord with all of their hearts. And I am a firm believer that a business owner that loves the Lord is going to be the best business owner. That's going to be somebody that employees want to work for. They're going to be drawn to you. Yesterday I referred to Titus chapter 2 when Paul was exhorting, uh, telling Titus to exhort the, the slaves to be obedient to their masters, to work unto the Lord under their leadership. And even if they aren't saved, Paul says so that the teaching of God may be attractive, may be attractive to them. That's how you use God in your business. Roger, thank you for your question. Oh, we have a phone call, so let's go to James on line one from Belmont. You're on the air. Uh,
3: yes, hi. Uh, I had a question. Uh, 2 Corinthians 7, uh, verse 1, it talks about uh, because uh, we have the promises And, of course, that was the prior verses. Uh, It says, Dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates the body and the spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So, uh, I guess, you know, I have a... uh, I I, kind of have an inkling that over in Galatians 5 uh, 16, I I may have found an answer to that. But I was wanting to find out from you... um, what it is that you think uh, Paul is referring to about purifying ourselves uh, from everything that contaminates uh, the body and the spirit. Uh, Great question. It doesn't really come straight out and say, you know, in the immediate verse, but like I said, uh, over in uh, Galatians five sixteen, it talks about walking by the spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. So, uh, yes. But I wanted to see if I'm on the right track or if you, or, or if you could just help me out with uh, uh, cleansing ourselves.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely, James. Great question. And so you're on the right track. You're on the right track. So what Paul the Apostle here, now you quoted the verse. I'm going to read it and I'm going to read the next verse, verse, verse two, two, so that we have a little bit of context. Since these promises since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. And then verse two, he says, "Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have exploited no one." And so the idea here is exactly what you said, James. We don't want anything to hinder our relationship with the Lord. And since 2 Corinthians is a letter written, a very personal letter written about ministry, it revolves around being used by God and ministering to others. The idea here, James, is that we don't want anything that, contaminates our body, contaminates our spirit to to taint our availability and usability to the Lord. The same thing that you reference in Galatians. There are the things of this world that, that want to lead us into compromise. And I love this because Paul starts this chapter, the first verse, with saying, since we have these promises, what promises? The promises that we just talked about in chapter six. The promises of of not compromising. Uh, This is the chapter where Paul is talking about not being unequally yoked in our relationships. If we do that, we honor God by living a life and practicing personal holiness. That's with the body. But then we also abstain from or purify ourselves or stay away from anything that contaminates us spiritually. That means uh, anything that hinders us from falling deeper in love with Jesus. Now, James, you didn't really ask this, but I would uh, expand this scope to include some practical things. When it comes to purifying ourselves from things that can contaminate us spiritually, this involves the way we think. Again, Romans chapter 12, when, when we consider what Jesus has done for us, we want to live our lives as a living sacrifice. We want to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. That means to put ourselves, body uh, and, and, and soul, completely on the altar of sacrifice to be used for God's glory and the the word picture here that i love in, in romans chapter 12 but i think also implied in principle here in in second corinthians 7 is we are an offering a sweet offering to god and and in the old testament this is illustrated in something called the olah which is the the whole burnt offering When they would sacrifice the animal onto the altar, the whole burnt offering would be one where the entire body was burned. There would be no parts cut off uh, for the priests and for the people. They would sacrifice the whole thing. Then this whole burnt offering, the the word olah, actually describes the smoke that would go up. And the picture here is that it's rising up to God. That's the olah. And Paul is saying, hey, let's not mess that up. Let's not taint anything because our lives are an offering to him. Let's stay away from impurities that would make that offering to God a less than great sacrifice. I hope that makes sense, James. Thank you for your call. I love this because, uh, James, your question, it is a question that comes from a heart, that wants to give everything to the Lord. The first thing I thought of was Romans chapter 12. And God is pleased when a man or a woman is committed to living a life that is a living sacrifice. When, whenever we we look at the Old Testament, we look at the the pictures of sacrifice and things that are being offered to God, something is always dying. Well, In Romans chapter 12, the interesting thing is God doesn't want us to physically die. He wants us to be physically alive. We do that by taking care of our bodies, that nothing hinders us. We can use the strength and the energy that we do have to serve Jesus. But he also says this. He says that he wants our lives to be a living sacrifice so we don't die physically, but we die to ourselves, die to our flesh so that God's Spirit can be alive in us. And we do this often, every day, throughout the day, making sure that the decisions we make, the words that we speak, are are a living sacrifice. Instead of practically thinking, I, I like to phrase it this way. You know, when when my mouth opens and words want to come out, being a living sacrifice means I'm not going to offer words that come from me. And if I am, then, then I'm not being a living sacrifice. I, I'm I'm being in my flesh, voicing my opinion. And that doesn't honor the Lord. But when we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, we open our mouths and the words that come out are words that are encouraging, edifying, uplifting. We forgive others quickly. We, 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 we repent when we're wrong. We say sorry when we know we're wrong. That's what being a living sacrifice is and and James that's exactly what chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians is about that first of first uh, first verse. I love that. Thank you for your call. Okay, back to the questions. The next one is from Ted. Ted says he addresses it to Pastor Ron, but I'll answer it anyways. Uh, Ted says, Dear Pastor Ron, I truly enjoy your radio program on my way to work and on my way home from work. Thank you for your guidance and true honesty in your delivery of what the Bible truly tells us versus many of the watered down translations by some pastors on other radio shows. Well, I'll answer for Pastor Ron in this one case only and and and. Thank you, Ted, for being a faithful listener and thank you for letting the Lord speak to your heart through this show. My question, he continues, is what Bible should I be reading? I currently read the King James Version, but there are so many that I was wondering what you recommend. I can answer this question and I'll let Pastor Ron elaborate if he wants to. But Ted, what what I would say is use whatever version of the Bible you'll read. Now, obviously, you've got to use a, a solid translation. You know, stay away from the New World translations or any of the other uninspired versions, the ones that have been manipulated for a, a certain errant doctrinal teaching. But there are a, a few, quite a few, solid translations that come from the um the same manuscripts. We have the Alexandrian texts and we have the Masoretic texts. And really, these two, by and large, uh, are the sources of most, of, not all of the modern translations. Now, when it comes to the different translations that are using the same manuscripts, why are there so many different ones? And you say, Ted, you use the The King James Version, and if that 's the version that you can read and understand and that it keeps you engaged and the Spirit of God is speaking to you that's great that's great but i 'll add this: I would be hesitant to to be married to and committed entirely exclusively to one version, one translation. Uh, you miss out when you are committed to just one exclusively, even if the King James Version of the 1611 English uh, ver- vernacular is different than what we would use today. There are just some words that mean something today that would have meant something differently during the 1611 King James era. And, and those things can get lost in translation when we live in our current society. This is why I encourage you. Uh, try different versions now, let me explain something. Uh, this may help when it comes to reading your Bible or looking at Bible translations. It is a technical science and it, it and it can be one that 's even distracting when you get so involved in the the publishers and who the authors are and and who the groups are and if there 's any biases. But what the Bibles do, what the modern translations do, is they have a range. This range is is the equivalence range. And on this spectrum, or this range, on one side, on the left, you'll say, you have uh, the formal equivalence. And if you want to think of formal equivalence, think of literary translation. So you go from formal equivalence, and then down to the other side of the spectrum, you have dynamic equivalents, and the, between these two are are places in between where Bible translations are at the very end of formal equivalents. That that means the most literal translation would be something like the NASB. The NASB is the most literal translation. That does that mean it's the best? No. But it's the one translated word for word, which means sometimes the sentences don't read in the same way we would read. But it it holds to a, a strong formal equivalence. Well, as you move down the spectrum and you go down to the other side, you get more dynamic. And dynamic equivalence is not looser in its translation, but it's more phrase by phrase and thought by thought. So you have literal on one end that's formal equivalent and then you go down to the other side that's dynamic that would be something like the NLT where it isn't so focused on the word for word translation but it's on the thought by thought. And the NIV what, what Pastor Ron uses the NIV 84 is is right in the middle. That's why we use it. It's right in the middle. It's it's a easy to read version and at the time uh, when when we started, it was the most popular one. So we wanted to use, wanted to teach out of the one that was most available. Well, as it turns out, the NIV itself and the publishers have changed. And so they they have a different translation or a different version, which we wouldn't recommend. Um, and unfortunately, that's the one that's out there now. And so if you could find it, NIV 84, this is one that's pretty easy to read. Um, but there's, there's a bunch of good translations. What I would suggest, again, is just don't be completely married or committed to just one. Thanks, Ted. The next question here, I don't have time, I think, to to give the numbers, but um, I'm going to read the questions that we do have that's already been submitted. This one is from the men's retreat. This one carries over. What would you tell a man who has homosexual attractions that understands that they cannot have sexual relations with another man, but wants to know if they are able to date men. This is a quick one. The answer is no. <laughs> and and I want to be very clear here. Having same-sex attraction is not sin. It's acting on it that's sin. We in our flesh have all kinds of attractions that we that are wrong. But acting on them is what makes it sin. So in this case, this anonymous question, when you have a man that has homosexual attractions, don't let the devil beat you up and make you feel condemned because you are submitting those attractions under the spirit of God. Instead, what you do is you focus on Jesus empowered by his spirit and you put that to death, just like your flesh, So you can't have sexual relations, you get that, but dating another man is just going to open up. Open up that desire to sin. Why do that? Why compromise? So no, uh, don't date other men. If you are still attracted to men, then don't date anyone. Be with Jesus and stay with him. That way you keep yourself free from sin, exactly what... James called in about 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Well, you can hear the music. That means we are done with the Wednesday edition to the Word to Stand On for Life. Don't forget, 7 o'clock tonight, our Old Testament study with Pastor Ed. I'll see you tomorrow, 4 o'clock.
1: Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh.